This morning, I would invite you once again to turn to the book of John, John chapter 3. We are going to continue our study in the, um, in the book of John in looking at this discourse between Nicodemus and Jesus. And I would tell you, if you, um, if you don't have a Bible and you need one, we've got some on the back wall the, uh, to the left there. And, um, and feel free to keep that if you need a Bible, certainly. Uh, so this morning we're going to look at John 3, and the context of our passage is that Jesus has begun his public ministry. Uh, he has been announced to the world by John the Baptist, and he had just visited uh, Jerusalem for the Passover week. And it was during that Passover week that Jesus did signs and wonders, and crowds gathered, and he taught and we see at the end of that second chapter that many believed in Jesus, though it wasn't a saving belief. It wasn't a genuine belief. It was, it was uh, shallow. It was superficial. And, and Jesus, it says there, did not have faith and entrust himself to them. And we have every reason to believe that Nicodemus was one of those. Nicodemus is the man who had come to Jesus here in chapter 3. Uh, Nicodemus, unbeknownst to himself... Nicodemus was speaking to his Messiah and did not recognize that fact. He was speaking to the one who was long awaited, the one he had studied for his entire life. Because Nicodemus was a Pharisee, he was a religious leader, he was a scholar, he was a teacher. And he was talking to the one sent from heaven by God himself to speak on heavenly things. And we've been looking at this discussion for the past two weeks, and we will finish it here this morning. And I would remind you the two non-negotiables, the two absolute imperatives that we've read about thus far in John 3. In verse 7, Jesus told Nicodemus, you must be born again. It's binding. It's, it's needed. It's a necessity. Man must be born again. And then in verse 14, Jesus said, that he must be lifted up. Man must be born again, and Jesus must be lifted up. Man requires a spiritual birth, and to make that spiritual birth possible, Jesus was required to atone for man's sins. And this is what we read about in John chapter 3, the necessities. It's impossible to have a relationship with God apart from these two things that Jesus points out here. And Nicodemus, a man who had studied the law and practiced it, a man who was no doubt moral, a man who was very pious, could not enter into heaven, could not comprehend the things of heaven without being born again. And to make this possible, you remember last week we looked at Jesus pointed back to an event in Israel's history. Israel was in the wilderness. They were complaining to God, and God had sent serpents. He had sent snakes, and, and these snakes were poisonous. They would bite the Jews, and many of them would die. And they asked God for forgiveness. So God put a plan in place that Moses could make a bronze serpent, put it on a pole, and, and hold it up. And any time someone was bit, if, the, if they looked to that pole, then they would be saved. And Jesus said in that like manner, he would be lifted up. And if anyone looked to him on the cross, they too would be saved. 
but the requirement was to look to Jesus in faith. They would not be saved from snake bites in doing so, but they would be saved from the bite of sin. This is why Jesus came. This is why he left heaven. And we looked at verse 16, which gives us the motivation of God. It was the love of God for the world, for mankind, that God put this plan in place. My wife and I were talking this week, and I find it somewhat fascinating that God put this plan in place to redeem man after man fell. He did not do so for the fallen angels. This is unique to man. This is God's love for men that he put this saving plan in place for men who are enemies of God and haters of God and are antagonistic toward God. The plan for eternal life is what Jesus is talking to Nicodemus about. And we saw last week, both in verse 15 and verse 16, that Jesus says, whoever believes... Whoever believes in him has eternal life. So this is open to everyone. It's open to all. And yet, despite this remarkable grace that we just sang about this morning, many will refuse to believe. And in our text before us this morning, Jesus explains why. So I would ask you now, let's read. We're going to reread verse 16 and briefly comment in on this morning, but we're going to read... John 3, 16 through 21, and then we'll ask God to bless our time. Jesus tells Nicodemus, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged, but he who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. This is the judgment that light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought from God. Our Father in heaven, you have commanded us to believe in the Lord Jesus, promising that to do so, one would receive eternal life. Help us to look to no one else for strength, for purpose, for direction in life. Help us to build on this foundation knowing that we will receive joy and satisfaction and contentment found in no other person. Give us a deeper insight into the depravity of our sin and our guilt and the judgment we deserve so that we will get a deeper look at both your love and the sacrifice that Jesus made for us. Bless our time together this morning. In his name we pray. Amen. So this morning, we're going to look at three things. We're going to look, first of all, that the reason Jesus came. He came to save the world. We started to talk about that last week, and we're going to see that again this morning. And then we're going to talk about the need for men, the need for men, the need for men to believe. That's what we'll see. 
That's what separates the believer from the unbeliever. And then finally, we're going to look at why men refuse to believe, why men don't believe. But let's start with that first point. Jesus' reason for coming was to save the world. And again, we discussed this briefly last week in verse 16, but Jesus continues that thought on into verse 17 and 18. So let's see what Jesus says. And what we know up front is that man is spiritually dead and needs a spiritual birth, needs to be born again. And Jesus came to make that available. It's again why he said that he must be lifted up. So mankind could look to him on the cross and in faith have salvation. And it's because of God's love that Jesus did this. He sent his only begotten son. That's what Jesus tells us in verse 16. And we know that whoever believes in him, it says here that two things are true. One, he will not perish. And two, he will have eternal life. Jesus essentially says the same thing there twice. Shall not perish. That is, the one who believes in him will not die will not see death, will not taste death, will not be destroyed. Rather, the one who believes in him will have eternal life. And this is a theme throughout the book of John. In fact, in the book of John, we read about eternal life 36 times. The next closest book in the Bible is Revelation, where we read about it 16. So the emphasis in the book of John is on eternal life, and Jesus is frequently speaking about it. Life that continues forever. Life that is perpetual. Life that never ends. That's what the believer gets, the one who is in Jesus Christ. So what becomes clear when we look at verse 16 into verse 17 and verse 18 is what is at stake for man. What is at stake is life and death. That is what is at play here. That is what Jesus is telling Nicodemus about. And Jesus is stating that he came here to give life, to give life. Sent because of God's love, sent to save the world. And now when we consider the reason Jesus came and why, the motivation of God, his love, let's take just a moment and consider whom Jesus came for, the condition of man, the state that man was in. In Isaiah 59, verse 2, I'll read that for you. This is what we read. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. What we we read there is, is man's own sin and iniquity separates us from God. Men's sin and iniquity Put us in a position where we call out to God and it says he will not hear. This is who man is. Man is separated from his creator. Paul told the Colossians in Colossians 1, 21. He said that although you were formerly, formerly alienated and hostile in mind, God has now reconciled you. He says there that man was alienated. That is, man is estranged. He's he's apart from God. And he's hostile. He's unfriendly to God. He's antagonistic to God in his mind. And it leads to these evil deeds. 
This is who man is. You go to the book of Romans, and you read that first chapter, 18 through 32 at the end, and Paul tells the Romans the nature of man. It's a nature of sin. It's a nature of evil, of opposition toward God. Man's bent is toward doing wrong. To the Ephesians, Paul says in Ephesians 2, that man is dead in his sin. He's a spiritual corpse in his sin. That that man follows the prince of this world, that is the adversary of God. That man lives in his own lust, the lust of his own flesh. That man is a child of wrath. That's who we are, children of wrath. That's why Paul tells the Romans in Romans 3 that no one seeks after God. No one understands godly things. Turn with me to Romans chapter 5. We looked at this a little bit last week. Romans chapter 5. In Romans chapter 5, Paul writes in verse 6, he says, while we were still helpless, and why were we helpless? It's for all the reasons I just described. We're we're enemies of God and haters of God and separated from God. While we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for us. And now look at verse 8. But God demonstrated his own love toward us. While we were sinners, Christ died. And then verse 10. If while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, And he goes on to say, how much more being reconciled will will we be saved? But what we see in that just short glimpse of this passage is is the state of man, helpless and sinners and enemies of God. Just like Isaiah said, separated from God because of our own iniquities. And as a result, as Paul says to the Romans here twice, Christ died for us. This is why he came. So man, back in John 3, man is not ambivalent toward God. Man is not agnostic. Man is not indifferent. Man is an enemy to God. This is who who we are, apart from Christ, for all those reasons I just presented. And that's why God, in his love, sent Jesus into the world to save the world, to save mankind. This was God's plan. He had every right to send Jesus to judge, but that's not why he sent him. He sent him to save. And that's what Jesus says in verse 17. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. It's what we call Jesus' first advent. The first time Jesus came, He did not come to judge. Now, to be clear, there will be a judgment, and it will be Jesus the one doing the judgment, and that happens on his second advent. But on this first advent, Jesus did not come to judge. He did not come to condemn. He did not come to punish. Although we were worthy of condemnation and we were worthy of punishment, that's what we deserve, but that wasn't his purpose. When we look at our day, when we look at society around us and the culture in which we live, 
It is a sin-ravaged environment. You know, it's interesting, if you look in that text in Romans 1, Paul says that men invent evil. And I feel like that's what we live in today, constant evil, just debauchery and, and, and opposition to God all around us. In fact, Paul says in Romans 1 at the very end that men know God's commands and know that in violating God's commands, it brings punishment and death. Yet not only does man do so, but they give hearty approval for doing so. This is the state and the condition of man. We create ways to offend God. This is who man is. This is the world in which we live in. This is the world which we all participated in at one point. But in God's love, he sent Jesus, but not to judge us, though that's what we deserved. He sent Jesus to, to save. That's what he says in verse 17. In fact, flip over to John 12. I honestly can't remember if we looked at this verse last week, but it's an astonishing verse about the Lord Jesus Christ. John 12, look at verse 47. Jesus says, If anyone hears my sayings and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save it. You see what Jesus says there? He's teaching the crowds. And he says, I'm giving you truth. I'm teaching you truth. I'm teaching you what is required for salvation. But if you don't receive my sayings, I don't judge you. I didn't come to judge. I came to save. That's essentially what Jesus is telling Nicodemus here. You remember, he had already told Nicodemus in verse 11, you won't accept my testimony. It's as if Jesus tells Nicodemus, I'm, I won't judge you. I did not come to judge this time, but I came to save. Didn't come to judge, he says in verse 17, but that the world might be saved. So did so, to, to deliver, to, to make whole. This is what Jesus did. This is why we say soli deo gloria, that Latin phrase, to God be glory alone. This is, this is tremendous that Christ came to offer us salvation. This is what should be at the forefront of our mind in December when we when we praise God for that first advent, not a manger and a baby, but that Jesus came not to judge, but to offer salvation to men in a state in desperate need of salvation. If he came for judgment, every one of us would have been guilty. That's who we are. The penalty of that guilt would have been eternal death. But Jesus says, I didn't come to judge. I came to save. He came to pay the guilt penalty for the sin in which all of those who believe in him have committed. This is why he came. He came to save. And that leads us to verse 18. What is required of men? Men must have faith, right? There's a, there's a need to believe. And that's what Jesus says here in verse 18. And, and he restates that those who believe have no condemnation, no danger of death, no danger of anything else for the believer, right? Look at verse 18. He who believes in me, he who believes in me is not judged. 
He who believes in me is not judged. Judged there means tried, condemned, punished. The one who believes in Jesus Christ is not going to receive any punishment. Now, as I read in those previous scriptures, as I summarized the state of man as a sinner, each one of us would be convicted in our own sins. We're without defense. There is no justification for sins apart from Jesus Christ. And yet Jesus says he came here to not judge. And the glorious thing is this. As a believer, if you are not judged by the Messiah, if you're not judged by the Son of God, if you're not judged by the Son of Man, the creator of the universe, who is it that can judge us? And Paul answers that question with saying that there's no one who can judge us, right? Our brother Paul prayed earlier, Romans 8, Romans 8, verse 1 and 2, where Paul writes, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation, no punishment, no judgment for those in Christ Jesus. And in the context of that passage, if you read the end of Romans 7, Paul says in his own life, he's got this constant battle with sin in his flesh. Paul writes and he says, the things that I want to do, I do not do. The things that I don't want to do, I find myself doing. And in verse 24, Paul says, oh, wretched man that I am. He, he's saying he's debased and he's vile as he sees his struggle with sin. But then the next thing he writes is, but if you're in Christ Jesus, there is no condemnation. That's the joy in Romans 8. God frees us from our guilt through Jesus Christ. Never to be judged, never to be condemned. That's why when you come to the end of Romans 8, Paul says, who can bring a charge against God's elect? If the sovereign God on the throne has justified you as righteous, who is it that can come and bring any kind of accusation against you at all? And he concludes that eighth chapter saying that nothing will ever separate you from the love of God. And he has a list there. Death, can death separate you from the love of God? Paul says no. What about life? Anything in life, can it separate you from the love of God? No. Angels? No. Things in the past, is there anything that happened in my life that can separate me from the love of God? Paul says no. What about things in the future? Anything that's going to come about? Nothing separates you from the love of God. If God has justified you, who can bring a charge against you? If you believe him, you will not be judged. That's what Jesus says here in John 3, 18. But you must have faith in Jesus. There's no other way to escape the judgment, the punishment, the penalty. And what about those who do not have faith in Jesus? He answers that in the middle part of verse 18. He who does not believe has been judged already. Why so, Paul? I'm, I'm sorry, why, why so, Jesus? It says, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. There's only two groups presented in verse 18. There's only two groups in the world, those who believe in Jesus and those who do not believe in Jesus. And for those who do not believe in Jesus, they don't believe in him as the Savior, as the Son of God, as the Son of Man, as the Messiah. They don't believe in what he did to pay for the sins of his people, it says they've been judged already. 
They have already been judged. For those who don't believe, they already stand condemned. That's the point here. It's what we all deserve. But if you believe, you won't be condemned. If you don't believe, you're already condemned. Let's look at this condemnation. This condemnation. This judgment. As I just alluded to, this judgment is present. The judgment already exists. The unbelievers are already in this state. They stand condemned. They're standing in their judgment, unbeknownst to themselves. Jonathan Edwards was a Puritan pastor in this 18th century, and uh, one of the greatest minds that they, many believe that uh, has ever been produced in the United States. And uh, he preached a sermon called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Some of you may be familiar with that. And there's a line in that sermon that says this, quote, thus it is the natural man, and he's referring to unbelievers there, thus it is the natural man that are held in the hand of God over the pit of hell already sentenced to it, end quote. That's what Jesus is saying right here. If you don't believe in him, you are already condemned. It's not a future trial. It's a judgment that's already taken place. It's already occurred because of the state and the condition of man that we spoke of earlier. This ought to resonate deep in our hearts. Everyone involved with this church, everyone here, this ought to burden our minds and our hearts for the lost. It ought to have us pleading with those around us that we know do not embrace Jesus Christ. The moment an unbeliever, anyone without faith in Jesus as described in the Bible, takes their final breath, their judgment is already set. They stand condemned. Payment due, verdict of the guilt already declared. It's a state of unbelievers. Men must believe in Jesus. That's why Paul told the Sanhedrin in Acts 4, there's no other name under heaven by which men can be saved. This is so easy, children can understand this. That's why Jesus said, bring the children to me, right? You stand condemned, but if you believe in Jesus, in who he is and what he did, you won't be judged, though you're condemned. You're free from your condemnation. You're free from your punishment. When you consider how simple that is, why would anyone not believe? And yet Jesus continues on in the text, and he tells us why. And that's our third point, why men don't believe. Look at the next three verses, verse 19 through 21. In these three verses, Jesus explains why men refuse the free, gracious gift from a supremely loving God. He says in verse 19, this is the judgment. So here it is. This is the judgment. This is how we've arrived at this point. And he presents three statements. This is the judgment. This is why they stand condemned. Souls ruined for eternity. And he provides three statements. But before I get to that, let me just show you something here. Compare and contrast verse 16 with verse 19. In John 3.16, it says, God so loved the world, so he sent his son. 
But in verse 19, it says that men so love their darkness. So the issue is never about God being unloving, right? We often hear about an un, how could a loving God do such and such. The issue is not about God's love. John 3.16, Jesus clearly said God's love drove him to do something. The issue is man's response, man's love. And that's what we're going to see here in verse 19. Notice, firstly, about this coming judgment in verse 19. God did send the light, right? This gets back to John 3, 16. Out of his love, he sent the light. It says here in verse 19 that the light has come into the world. You go back to when we started this study in chapter 1, verse 4, and it said that Jesus is the light of men. And it says in verse 5 that he came to shine light in the darkness. This is what Jesus came. He came as a light. And what does light do? Light illumines, light brightens, light reveals, light allows for discoveries, light dispels darkness. And Jesus here is obviously talking spiritually. He's using light as an analogy. What did Jesus do? He came to give truth. He came to give instruction, teaching. He came to give doctrine by which we can understand the things of God. We can understand God's divine truth. That's what Jesus came for. That's when Jesus came as the light. But notice secondly in verse 19, men love darkness rather than the light. So we see the second point. Men love darkness. They have a preference. There's a preference here for all men. You can, you, you've got God's love and the light that that produced, or you have darkness. Those are the two things at choice here. And Jesus says in verse 19 that men would not accept God's light. Rather, they would choose darkness, darkness in the world and the darkness of their sin. In fact, it says in verse 19, they love the darkness. It's the same Greek word, loved, used of God in John 3.16, agapao. Unconditional love, sacrificial love, determined love. These men rejected the light because they are determined to love darkness. They're, they're preconditioned to love darkness. They, they, they unconditionally love the darkness. They, they, the, the love of the object for them is on darkness. It's what they've chosen. And again, as with light, darkness is a metaphor here. What Jesus is referring to is is ignorance, error, sin, doubt. The opposite, anything that's the opposite of God and his holiness. That's what we would say of darkness here. So Jesus is telling us in verse 19, men love ignorance and error rather than the truth that comes from the light. It seems absurd that men would do that. Why would we do that? He tells us, thirdly, at the end of verse 19, because their deeds are evil. And he goes on in verse 20 to say that the fear is that their deeds would be exposed by the light. That's why they choose darkness, because their deeds are evil. And if they bring their evil deeds to the light, it, they will be exposed. Deeds here is referring to their work, their effort, what they toil over. 
Deeds here could be a false religion. It could just be abstract immorality. Deeds here could be the actions that man does. It could be the thoughts of man. It could be all those things. For the age in which Jesus is saying this to Nicodemus in that first century, the deeds that were evil, it could be the Jews that were trying to earn their salvation by keeping strict adherence to the law. The deeds could be the Gentiles. The Gentiles who had pagan gods of which they gave their worship. It could be those men that we read about that, that I described to you from Romans 1 whose every thought was on evil, the other depravity and wickedness of men against God. All those could be tied up here in these evil deeds. But notice, not only do they reject the light, look at verse 20. Not only do they reject the light, but all those that do evil, they hate the light. They hate it. They detest the light. So it's not just it's not, just not willing to accept. There is a hatred for God's truth because that truth would expose their deeds. It, it robs men of their self-righteousness. It, it robs men of the feeling good about themselves, right? It, it robs men that, that of those that think, well, I'm not as bad as others. It brings conviction and guilt when we compare our lives against the light. And rather than experience that, men have chosen to reject the light and hate the light to the ruin of their soul eternally. They would rather remain in darkness, loving that darkness, having their, their, their sins concealed against God. Paul told the Ephesians in Ephesians 5.11, do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead expose them. He goes on to say, all things become visible when they are exposed by the light. That's the message that Jesus is saying here. That's what's at play here in verse 19 and 20. Bring your deeds to the light to have it exposed, to understand. Compare your lives against God's truth. You know, we could summarize verse 19 and 20 of what Jesus says to Nicodemus as willful ignorance, right? It's determined to stay in, in the dark. And, and again, I would suggest to you, this is 21st century living right here. This is where we live our lives, the culture in which we live in. The attitude that I don't want anyone telling me what the Bible has to say about this issue. I don't want anyone telling me that I need forgiveness for doing this or for doing that. I determine what's right or wrong. I determine what's acceptable. I set the rules. It's an avoidance of truth, right? As Jesus would say, it's an avoidance of the light. And it's a great source of tension in our world today. It leads to animosity. It leads to bitterness and hatred. Many of those that want to set their own rules look to anyone who has faith in what the Scripture says with pity or mockery. This is the world we live in today. We hear all around the world where pastors get accused of hate speech and, and so on and so forth. Why don't men come to Christ? Why don't they believe? Why won't they listen to Jesus? Because they hate the light. They love their sin. They love those things that are contrary to God. And this isn't my opinion. This isn't your opinion. This is what Jesus says right here. This is clear. 
But thankfully, Jesus has verse 21 in here. Thankfully, Jesus has a final message to Nicodemus. And this concludes his discussion with Nicodemus. It ends right here. And it ends on good news. Verse 21. He who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought from God. Right? Praise be to our God that some don't fear having their deeds exposed by the light. In fact, they run to the light. They want their deeds exposed, as Paul commended the Ephesians in that verse I referred to earlier. Such men as David, King David, Psalm 26.2, David says, Lord, he says, examine me, examine me, try me, test my mind and test my heart. That's the description of the man Jesus is talking about here in verse 21. He comes to the light. He practices the truth. To practice the truth. I love the ESV reads, he does what is true. He does what is right. He does what is, what is truthful. He's sincere. This is how Jesus describes Nathaniel. You remember back in chapter 1 when Nathaniel came? Jesus said, an Israelite in whom there's no deceit. This one is genuine. Jesus said of Nathaniel. And that's what's being described here in verse 21. Someone who's genuine. He's bringing his works before God to be exposed by the light because as it says at the end of verse 21, he wants it to be seen that what he does is in God. He comes and he receives the divine revelation, the truth from God so that he can live his life in such a way that pleases God. He wants his deeds manifested. That means to render apparent, to show forth This man comes to God for truth so that the product of his life will give evidence that he belongs to God. Unlike verses 19 and 20, this man is the one who believes in Jesus Christ. This is the one Jesus came for, to not judge, but to give this one eternal life, right? Go back one more time to John 12. We'll close right here. John 12, we already read verse 47, but let's read the text right before it because in there, Jesus summarizes everything that he said to Nicodemus here in John 3. If you go back to John 12, let's start verse 44. It says there that Jesus cried out and said, he who believes in me does not believe in me, but him who sent me. He who sees me sees the one who sent me. Now notice verse 46, I have come as light into the world so that everyone who believes in me will not remain in darkness. This is again, this is why Jesus came. He came for that one in John 3, verse 21, the one that would believe in him, the one that wants the light to have his evil deeds exposed. This is the message that Jesus gave Nicodemus that God loves you, that he loves the world. God loves mankind. And to demonstrate that, he sent Jesus to provide salvation. So the issue isn't on God's side. The issue, again, is not a God who is unloving. God has proven his love. The issue is on man's side. Man loves sin, and man hates for that sin to be exposed. And Jesus tells Nicodemus, if we look at the entirety of this passage, you've got to believe in him for salvation. And to do so, you must be born again.
You've got to have that birth from above. It's what he told him in verse three. It's what he told him in verse five. That's what he told him in verse seven. And what this means for us, if you're here today and you are a Christian, then we have a mission before us. We must implore every man, plead with every man to believe in Jesus Christ. To have this faith that Jesus demands. Two things that we can do and we must do. Number one, remain faithful to preach this gospel. Preach this message. The message that Jesus had for Nicodemus is a message that we should share with everyone that we come in contact with. To every person in every nation. It's what we must do. And secondly, we pray that God would bring spiritual life from above through his only spirit as only he can do. This is what Jesus told Nicodemus. This is what he's told us, and this is the message that we share with others. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we praise you for your goodness and your mercy. We recognize fully we did not deserve your love. We did not deserve you sending Jesus. We were hopelessly lost in sin, enemies of you and haters of you. We deserve to be judged. But praise be to you that by faith in Jesus Christ, we are redeemed not to be judged, not to be condemned, not to die, but to have eternal life. We praise you, Father, for your love and for sending Jesus. We praise you, Jesus, for being lifted up to take the penalty for the sins of your people. We praise you, Holy Spirit, for the miraculous spiritual birth that you cause in men's lives. We love you, our majestic and glorious and triune God, and praise you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.